Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. Beethoven. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome to episode 132 of the podcast. My guest this week is I'm Mr. Lee, and I'm uh, a music producer. My career started in Houston, Texas. I produce people from Scarface, Mary J. Blige, Jay-Z, Tupac, Nipsey Hussle, Slim Thug, Lil' Kiki, the Whaley, just a bunch of people, man. And, and not to put words in your mouth, but technically, you're responsible for Iggy Azalea and Machine Gun Kelly, technically. Absolutely. I got drank by the paint, drove by the pine, headed to the club in the boss top down. Slim thug about to climb, representing H time. If you love me, you gon' smile. If you hate me, you gon' grind. Cause me and my boss hogs about to bow till we bow. This year, I won't style. Slim thug, I want it out. Going solo, first CD out that's not slow mo. Here's another hit, thanks to drink in the dodo. But show though, we got the club shut down. Trying to pick with chick I'm a cut now I got a fetish for thick girls that's caramel brown on the hunt and up guess what I just find come and VIP with me boo while we post up what we blowing purple stuff we pouring purple stuff we blowing from rich stuff you can tell it we rich it's slim thug a T.I.P. and bun B bitch when I hit the club all the girls show me love H-Town legend, multi-platinum music producer Mr. Lee is in the house this week. I don't care, man. Call me biased because I'm a Texas boy, but Mr. Lee is more than just a music producer. He creates movements in hip-hop. He damn near scored my childhood. So it's a big deal that he swanked through. We talk about the Rap-A-Lot days, his family history and accomplishments therein. His days in the church becoming a top producer in the South, working with everybody under the sun. We talk about the Johnny P's, the Little Kiki's, how to navigate the business and early recording sessions with Scarface and Mike Dean. But before we get to all that, if you're new to the podcast, look, the last episode was with a modern funk keyboard player. This week I got the king of the South. And next next week we might we might uh, hop into Electronica. I don't know. 
this podcast covers it all. So if you're just a fan of music and you like the conversations, feel free to show your love, subscribe, like, tell a friend about the show, rate the show five stars, leave a favorable review, write into the show, say hello, visit bedroombaitomans.com and buy a shirt, poke around, I'm out there. All you got to do is find me. All support for the podcast comes from my Patreons. It keeps the show ad-free and they get some perks. Just a buck or two gets you into this club. Visit patreon.com slash bedroombaitovens. And I appreciate everyone who tunes in. It's back to school season. Fall is fastly approaching. Hope everyone just stays safe, stays blessed. And without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. Let me start off by saying that uh, you inspired me. There's a video of you on Instagram driving through your neighborhood, and you're basically saying, like, with hard work, you can move here. And if I can make it, you can make it. And I'm getting a house built in Houston. I know you're in Dallas, but I just moved to Houston, and I got hyped up, man. I appreciate videos like that. Yeah, man. I mean, a lot of people do it, and they do it for the wrong intentions when they do those type of videos. But I really can't. My story, I really came from difficult times and it wasn't I wouldn't change it you know what I'm saying that's just what it is but I, I'm a true believer and true uh true to what I say and you know really anybody can get can have that it's not it's not unaccessible to certain people anybody can get it if you want it well you're you're not the first outlier in your family you came from from successful creative black entrepreneurs my whole life in formal elementary school and middle school I was ta- taught that the Wright brothers were responsible for the airplane, but the the true patent holder, the true originator, was right there in your family. Exactly, it was my great grandfather. Did Did you have that knowledge growing up, or is that something you learned in your adulthood as you were learning about your family? At the age of six, I saw the blueprint to the uh, airplane that he be- built, but at that time, I did not know that he had a patent on it. But Ever since I was six years old, I knew that he had invented the airplane. I mean, and how frustrating is that? I mean, I bet you're around your friends growing up, like, hey, man, my, my great-grandfather invented it. They'd probably be like, yeah, right. And you're raising your hand in class telling the teacher that they're wrong. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I guess I was smart enough to know that me trying to uh, explain that to people, they wasn't going to accept it and believe it. So I never disclosed it to people. You know, I, I really just said and I observed the history books and of course I was upset about it. And it wasn't until my adulthood actually a couple of years ago when I did go back and I reread the history of it of the airplane and read the Wright brothers story, they said that they were considered to be the first people to invent the airplane. They didn't unequivocally say that they were. Yeah, I guess, and it's funny, depending on where you are in the world, it's different. Like if you're in New Zealand, you're told that Richard Purse was the first to fly. If you're in Brazil, it's Santos Dumont did it. Right. Charles Page, his achievements were in the newspaper. It's been documented in Pineville, Louisiana. Like over, yeah. So how did the Wright brothers like go around stealing credit when this stuff was documented? That's crazy. I think um, for the most part, I really believe that they got a hold of my grandfather's invention and they you know revised it in the ways they wanted to do and that's how they came up with their airplane in the first place because my great-grandfather had shipped his airplane out to uh st louis missouri for the louisiana purchase fair 
it was a hundred thousand dollar prize. And as a black man, he had enough nerve to try to do that shit. You know what I mean? I just admire this man more and more every time I learned something about him because he had no filter on the things that he wanted to do. He just went out and done it. I'm surprised he had time to do anything because he had 11 kids. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was busy in all arenas. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, 84 years later, you're still in Pineville. You know, you're going to high school there. So your family history in that area is cemented. Yes. My music career started in his house. Believe that or not, I learned how to play the piano in his house. Wow. And I hope you're not too humble for me to call you like an outlier because at age nine, you're, you're a musician in the church by that time. You're like a competitive piano player. So there, there might have been adults in that church choir that were taking direction from you. Absolutely. <laughs> they were. I used to intimidate people when we used to go to church and my dad is like a well-known solo gospel singer in that region. And, you know, when they came up, they already knew that it was going to be something special. And then, you know, me, my dad would always go up and talk and then he would have me come up afterwards. And he's like, well, I got my son with me. He's going to play for me, yada, yada. And it's this little boy coming up, getting on the piano and I'm thrashing the older people, you know what I mean? So it was always something something really special. And you played the, the bass clarinet too. Yes. That's awesome. Bass clarinet, flute, saxophone. I, I played several instruments. Were there any, uh, I, I guess because it was, it was a predominantly white high school, were there any racial frustrations? Like Charles Page is breaking down barriers. You're breaking down barriers. You're the first black drum major at a white high school. Before you guys won state, How were, were people a little salty? Were they a little hesitant under your leadership? Not really. You know what I mean? I I grew up around the, the kids that I went to school with. I lived in a rural area called uh, in Pineville. So I grew up with a lot of the white kids that I went to school with. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I did get some resistance younger. I did experience racism and had to deal with the complications of it. I'm not going to say that I didn't. But, you know, when I went to high school, a lot of the kids that I went to high school with, I grew up with them. So we knew each other. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. I'm just curious, like you're leading a band of 400 people of those 400. How many are black? <laughs> Probably about 30. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, it's, it's funny. So this transition, you know, as a person who has played in, in orchestras and church, I mean, you're classically trained. How do you make the transition to rap a lot. And before you answer that question, I'm not saying that classical orchestra music is better than hip hop and you're in no way watering down your abilities to produce hip hop. But instead of scoring films or playing on Broadway, you're making music with do or die. And that's not a linear path, I imagine. No. I mean, I had to learn how to dumb it down. Actually, that's what I had to learn how to do. But I had some crazy mentors when you talk about people like Mike Dean, N.O. Joe, John Beta was the first uh, producer from Rap Lot that I ever linked up with. And that was way before I signed to Rap Lot. I actually knew a friend that knew him and we went to his brother's house and I met him a couple of years before I ended up signing to Rap Lot and it all circled back around and I ended up at Rap Lot. But I had some extreme mentors to uh, look at and take example of on how to make the music and what I needed to do. And that's how I became who I am. Is this before or after the four deep days? Uh, this was This was after. It was after, after four deep days. It's funny because, um, you know, Scarface said while recording Mary Jane and Smile that him and Mike Dean were doing weed, coke, ecstasy. They were drinking lean. He said they did everything except heroin. So just from a rap studio environment, from like an atmosphere standpoint, like not too many bassoon players are backstage before an orchestra 
performance doing lines of coke that must have been an adjustment for it you. was you know what i mean crazy enough we were working on um what album was that last of the dying breed and you know i'm I, I don't i don't do drugs or anything like that i don't have any habits of doing drugs i've never been high except for like maybe some secondhand contact but it was wild to me man because one time i was in the studio with him and mike dean and it was somebody else there too and these guys kept going to the bathroom together. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, man, what the fuck is going on? These niggas keep going to the restroom at the same fucking time. It's some gay shit going What the fuck is it? But they was in there doing coke. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't know that shit. That's what they were doing at the time. You know what I mean? I seen a lot of shit, you know, just going through life and doing different things. So, yeah, the stuff that Scarface is saying is definitely true. And, he, you know, he went through all of that. Scarface aside, though, so you didn't conduct yourself in the studio like Mike Dean or John Beto. You did things a little bit differently. Your process was different. Absolutely. I mean, to this day, I have a live set that I do on Instagram called Beats for Breakfast. And for me, you know what I mean? I could do a track. I could do the concept of a track in 10 minutes. It takes me another 10 minutes to put it all together and arrange it. So I came in the game with that gift and it was different than anybody else's because I can actually put a track together in minutes. And I know how to read the room and read vibes and body language when I'm doing the music. So I depend on the vibe and the energy of a person when I'm around them. That's what the production is led by. Believe it or not, you know what I mean. So yeah, it's it's definitely a special gift that I have. And and you know we we talk about Mike Dean and John Beto during that time. This is just a side note, but I feel like I have to bring it up. What happened to Joe Bythewood, who produced a lot with you and on the same albums as you in the nineties? Um, it what happened to him was pretty tragic. If yeah. people don't know, his 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 son ended up killing him. So were you, were you guys pretty close? We were super close. You know what I mean? Joe was battling drug addiction and a lot of different things, and it kind of inhibited us moving forward as I progressed in my career and my success, and that's why we got separated. But Joe used to call me out the blue all the time. I went from Ziplocs and baking soda to smoking herb cooking Yola. Never looking overnight success because I want a rover. Hold your head up and stick your chest out. And if you have your business game, you get your best out. You know, he just called me, hey, what you doing, yada, yada, yada. You know, he, had, he was a good spirit and he was a phenomenal guitar player. You know what I'm saying? He, he used to tell stories about how he used to work with uh, Roger Troutman and all of this kind of shit. When he first used to tell me those stories, I was like, man. Nigga, you ain't working no damn Roger Trapman. Why are you telling these lies, my nigga? You know what I'm saying? So one day we were working on um, a record with Scarface, and Roger did the, the talk box on it. And, man, Roger Trapman laid eyes on JB, and he ran to this nigga and hugged him. And I'm looking at this shit, and I'm like, wow. Then they went into a room and played guitars for about 30, 45 minutes, just locked in playing. Like childhood kids, like they hadn't played with each other in – in years, man, it was it was crazy. But yeah, he was definitely that guy. You know what I'm saying? I just, I just wished that JB could have progressed and really seen the fruits of his labor, man. That's I tell people that all the time. That's incredible. It's one thing. It's one thing to achieve some things. It's one thing to get some trophies and accolades for something that you've done. But it's another thing to be able to enjoy the fruit of the labor. You know, those are Absolutely. two different things. Yeah, I feel like people don't talk about him enough. So that that story is incredible. Um, I think uh, twofold, yeah. you know, with the drugs and everything, there's also the business side of music. And 
I, I think back in the early nineties when you you're getting started and you're negotiating with Jay Prince, how did that go? Cause you're a, you're a 25 year old Mr. Lee. You're, you're a bit green on the business end. Was your introduction to the business fair? Did it serve you well? It served me well. I mean, a lot of people said that it wasn't fair in my circumstances or whatever, but for me, it was super fair to me. And the only reason I'm saying it was, is because I, I was starting from nothing. You have a lot of people that go into business and they want to fight for different things. They want to own all of their publishing. They want to own all of their masters. They want to do yada, 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 yada. My per- perspective on these things is this. If a person's not getting something out of the deal or they're not getting a piece of the pie, then they're not going to put the pie on the table. You have to build a portfolio in order to gain access to ownership and power and different things like that. So I knew I had to give up some things in order to get in the door. And my my decision was right because every time somebody came in to rap a lot, I was there doing the music because rap a lot had a stake in making money with me on the front and the back end. So that's why I was on so many records. If you look from 1996 to 2004, I dominated every single album that came out of rap a lot from those years. And that was because I was smart enough to understand that I had to give in order to get. Once I was able to build my brand and my name, then I was able to start my own thing, own my own music, get my own publishing deals, and et cetera. You know what I mean? So it was a very good decision for me. I was about to say, in 1997, you're rocking a, a seven series, and that has a sticker price of 90 grand. So you're exactly that was my first car. Ooh, we. <laughs> I mean, you're so successful, even your all your you know, legal problems just get thrown out of court. Like your success was almost meteoric. It was, it was maybe a lot of other producers probably couldn't have handled success coming in that quick. No, and I think you know, I mean, that situation that I was in was was very. Uh, it was a very important piece because I was working in my career. Like, okay, I can die or I can go to prison at any time. So I don't want to take a minute or a second for granted. And I stayed in the studio and I worked extremely hard. And then I had a guy by the name of Big Chief that was my manager and my most important mentor that embodied a work ethic to me that I still have to this day that makes me who I am. That's why I have all the things that I have is because I learned to work and not worry about getting patted on the back, getting in the, in the limelight and raising my hand so everybody could see what I did and all of that kind of stuff. I just basically had a work ethic to make the money. I was about to say that a lot of people thought you linking up with Big Chief was a bad idea. Why, why, would, Absolutely. They, why would they say that? Because they feel like giving 20% to a person that they think is not doing anything is not a wise move to make. But it was the most important move that I could have ever made because Big Chief made sure that if anything moved at Rappelot, I was involved. And that and that was a very essential piece and very pinnacle point of my whole situation at Rap a Lot, because without Big Chief, I wouldn't be making all of the placements that I have. Without Big Chief, I wouldn't have the private meetings with Little Jay, with him talking to me and asking me, "Am I capable capable of running the studios?" Because he saw how dependent I was and how he could rely on me to do things. And that's why I got in that position. In, in 2002, by the time you're, you're getting major placements for over half a decade at this point, I can speak on this because I grew up in Texas. Uh, you might have a different opinion, but when Get Your Mind Correct drops, I was a senior in high school when that dropped. And Paul Wall and Camillionaire, I remember everyone thought Paul Wall was black for like a whole year. 
Right. Man, that album that album dropped. For me, it was pivotal. What did that do to you? Did you take notice immediately when that album dropped? I didn't because I was already ahead of it. You know, I mean, you have to remember I was doing records with Lil Kiki and Slim Thug, and I was beginning to make my stake into the business. And Slim was one of the first people that I reached out to. Those two guys were the people that I had my eyes on that I wanted to dive into outside of rap a lot. And as we know, you know, Slim is one of the most successful rappers of that era from Houston. What's the formula, though? Like, why do you think someone like Paul Wong Camillioner took off with someone like PSK 13 or Charlie Boy or 5050 Twin or Hawk couldn't quite break through? What, what do you think it is? I just think it's the day and the time, the era. You know what I mean? It was bricks and mortar when PSK was coming out. It wasn't a lot of internet. If, if it was internet at all, I don't think it was internet yet. And he didn't have the access that these guys have now. You know what I mean? Having the internet and being able to move in warp speed with your music and reaching people immediately by push of a button is a very strong tool. Plaques from the 90s, those are, that's blood, sweat, and tear plaques. Those plaques are hitting the streets and touching hands. Now you can hit a button and touch people in in, in an instant. And I think if PSK was, was to come out now, the young PSK, yeah, he would be definitely out there. Ooh, so it's, it's timing. It's definitely time. Well, I was listening to a podcast with Jazzy Faye, and 20 years ago, Area Codes came out, and he said he got half a million dollars for that one beat. And he was like, man, I didn't know you could buy a house with just one beat. So, like, you know, if, if talking about money is a little tacky, by all means, I respect it. But I, I got to imagine you were getting that kind of numbers going side by side with Pharrell on Already Platinum. I wish I was. <laughs> I, I wasn't. Pharrell was getting $150,000 a track. I was getting ten. But at the time when I was doing that, I was getting twenty five to fifty thousand a track. But Slim was a guy that you know was family, so I had cut my rates with him at the very beginning. I was selling tracks again at twenty five thousand at least per track, and I was when I got with Slim, I was selling tracks to him for five hundred dollars. But it was because I believed in what he was doing, and I cut my prices to do that. You know what I'm saying? So. I never got up to the $150,000 because I was the hometown guy. I was the guy that stayed and nurtured the culture in my city. I didn't go abroad a lot and get out there. If I had, yeah, I would have got to the 150 half a million dollar tracks easily. Well, something happened. His next album, Boss of All Bosses, he went to Koch Records. You produced half the album. Was there a conversation between you two? Like, man, I, I want to go back to the street shit. I'm done with radio. And that's got to be calculated because a Kanye beat might cost a mil. Neptune's beat might, like you say, 150000 A Jay-Z feature might cost two mil. Or I can take that budget, I can go to Mr. Lee, and he can make me a Southern classic. It kind of seems like smart business. Well, I mean, a lot of things transpired. You know, at the time, you know, Slim was young. We were going through different things, and we have growing pains like everybody else. That's my brother. I love him to death, and I'm always doing stuff for him to this day because that's my brother. You know what I'm saying? So we went through our little spat and everything. And I and I remember telling him, I said, look, dude, if your album succeeds, I'm going to be there. 
I'm going to be there. I said, if it fails, I'm going to still be there. I said, but when if this shit fails, Pharrell is not going to be there. And it's no knock on Pharrell. It's just business. And the album didn't do exactly what it was supposed to do. And that access and the relationship musically with those guys diminished. I was stayed there. You know what I'm saying? And the album just wasn't as good as a total Mr. Lee and Slim Thug record. We have the best, one of the best chemistries when it comes to production with me and Slim. It's unmatched. When it comes to production with me and Lil Kiki or Zero or, or any of them niggas from Houston, it's unmatched. I'm the person. I'm the guy. You know what I'm saying? I'm the guy that, I'm the GOAT. I'm the guy that gets the shit done. And I know how to produce records for those guys. And that's why we, when we went back to Koch, we got our chemistry back together and we went back and we started doing records completely with me in the front. And that's how it's been. Yeah, I'll even I'll back that that up with a couple more examples. Scarface too. You know, the fix came out with Kanye, Jay-Z, Nas, Faith Evans, Neptune's production. But his next album, Balls of My Word, no radio singles. It was Zero, Bun B, Devin the Dude. And I felt the same happened with Paul Wall. He's on Drive Slow with Kanye West. But your track, Sippin' the Bar, was the lead-in to the track on his album. Right. And his next album, Get Money, Stay True, was almost exactly produced by you. I mean, it was Jermaine Dupree, Drummer Boy, Travis Barker, but the rest was you. I mean, even when you look at that, um, at the record that Get Money, Stay True, and you look at the, you listen to Jermaine Dupree track on Paul Wall's album, his shit sounds just like mine. You know what I mean? So I'm looking at this shit, and I'm listening, and I'm like, wow. And at the time, it's the labels. The major labels like, oh, we need Jermaine Dupri or we need this and yada, yada, yada. But Jermaine Dupri went in with the Grills record and it sounded like some Mr. Lee shit. You know what I'm saying? So it, to me, I've always been a trendsetter. I've never got the really the recognition for being that, but I am the trendsetter. The screwed up hook shit, I took that shit to a whole nother level and to where the world is using that shit. And they had their eyes and their ears open watching Houston doing that, doing that, and I was the man behind it. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's just a lot of things that I've set trends for that are used to this day still. So if it was up to you and Paul Wall, that would it would have just been exactly produced by you every track, but the label kind of comes in and says, hey, you know, Drummer Boy did that track with Plies. It's hot, so we have to put him on there. Travis Travis Barker kind of seems like an anomaly, but I, I get it because they, they were in a group together. And then – like we have to throw in JD. It just seems like it, they're puzzle pieces that don't fit. Yeah, I mean it's all hype. I mean that's part of the, the problem with rap music, and why a lot of people don't last and don't have a long uh, career in rap music because they dance from one producer to the other. But when you're looking at pop singers, rock, and R&B, some most of the like the ground R&B guys, they go to the same people. They don't move around like that. You know what I'm saying? You can't grow when you skipping around. You can't really solidify a sound for yourself when you moving around different people. And that's that's a, a problem, and actually. You like you got to a position where you started a label, so you could kind of see these problems head on. And I know that's where some of the um, disagreements with Zero came in. When you st- when you started this label, like, hey, you know, maybe I want to evolve and upgrade where i'm not just selling beats now i'm gonna have to deal with the fine print and i get to cultivate talent but also rappers are waking up one day like fuck this contract i'm not doing an album blah 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 does it make the industry less fun for you or are you still 
have that fire in your belly, like, I want to be a label owner? Yeah, I mean, it's a task. You know what I mean? It's a lot that goes behind closed doors on the whole situation, even like with the zero thing. You know, I just wanted to do business the right way. When I signed Zero, he was still signed to J Prince Entertainment. You know what I mean? And we had a conflict in that. And I took things, matters in my own hand and dealt with the business the way I wanted to do, to deal with it, to get whatever money that we spent back. You know what I mean? But it was all respect and love. And it's still all respect and love between me and Zero. We have disagreements on whatever it is, and it is what it is. Some people uh, get on the phone and air their grievances out. Some are just write a song about it, I guess. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> yeah. it is what it is. I'm almost 50 years old, man. I've seen it, experienced it all. And this internet age, you know, people have a voice to try to air their differences out however they want to air it out. If they feel like they can seek and destroy you by that, then they'll try to do it. And it just may be something in the moment, you know what I mean? But it's all love. I love all the guys that I've dealt with over the last 20 years, whether we have conflict or not. I'm open-minded to all of that stuff, but yeah, I just, you know, I've really fallen back and really just working on my brand. I think it's more essential to work on my brand than try to work on another artist brand because they don't get it. You know what I mean? This is a microwavable uh, era that we're in and I'm still a developer. I like to slow cook mine. You know what I mean? So I feel like my focus need to be on me and I can bring the artist on with whatever I'm doing and show them better than I can have them in a situation to try to show them because they won't understand it. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing that a lot of your past work can cultivate like future talent. Like I, I mentioned machine gun Kelly. Um, and then there, there was Nipsey that was on the little Kiki beat. And, um, but here's the, here's the magic though. Get throwed was a monster record, but bun B recorded that verse during the too hard to swallow era. Right. I mean, we're talking almost 30 years ago. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah, that record was done in 1992. I revamped it in 2002. It sat on the shelf for another two years, and then it came out. Wow. I came in the dope. I said it before. I never fuck a hoe what I hid no more. I never pull up with nothing less than a folk. And I smoke cigars. It ain't just for the show. I'm blessed from the dope. And known for my city eye. I send a nigga, baby, mama home with a spit eye. You can have a bitch, nigga. I ain't send a minute. I smoke weed and freestyle. No bitch from minute. Yeah, so I mean, music is timeless if you make it that way. You know what I mean? It's a lot of people that don't understand that part. And the business has to be done right. You can, you can have music that is ushered out to millions of people but if you're not getting the money then it doesn't matter you know what i mean it's like the shit doesn't even make sense if you don't do that i'm working with an artist named al d out of uh, austin texas he's from longview and he's selling records hand to hand and i guarantee you this man is making more money monthly than rappers that are having millions of streams are and because he's getting, he has a group of people that are willing to pay for his music, not just listen to it for a fraction of a penny. And that's important. And that's the same way with me. I don't have a lot of super mega accolades under my belt, or I don't have the stardom and the fame that a lot of these cats out here have. But financially, I can sit amongst any one of them. 
because I was smart enough to know how to make money in this business. You, you seem to have like your your business mind solidified for decades, and that's why you're so successful. There's always that line that Dr. Dre used when he said, when your record sales slump, who's the doctor they told you to go see? And I imagine you had your fair share of that. Did you ever have people like Lil Ray or Sir Daly or PJ come to you and they, they see the beats that you're giving the Slim and Kiki and Zero like hits, and maybe they got jealous or involved you in some kind of drama? Uh, not, not people like Sarah Daly, but I've had my, my, you know, I've had my share of drama. I've had, you know, stories posted about me and this and that and the third. One thing about it, man, is that the older I got, the more I understood that everybody's not going to be happy with the business that you conduct with them. And I've been able to understand that selfishness and being selfish is a, is a necessity in this business. In anything that you do, you have to understand that you have to put yourself first. And I do that in every business endeavor that I get in because I'm trying to benefit me. If we all work together and we do what we're supposed to do, then everybody will get what they're supposed to get out of this pie. But when you backtrack on some things or you don't handle your business with me, then I'm going to see you about it. I'm not going to be argumentative. I'm not going to get on the internet. I'm not going to say none of that shit. I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to be poised about it. And I'm going to come up with a solution to where I can be compensated for my time and my efforts and whatever it is that I've done with you. I think being a real humble guy, sometimes people take that persona for weakness. I'm not weak. I just don't like to be involved in no drama and I don't like to air anything out with people. If I got problems, problems with them, I go straight to them. I'm not going to get on the internet. I'm not going to make a track and a song about you. I'm going to talk to you about it. And then we're going to try to work it out. And if you don't want to talk to me and you don't talk to me, then I'm just going to do what I need to do. And and that's going to be the end of the story with that. Because I think we, I think we covered a lot. Um, Another person that I feel like people don't talk about enough is Johnny P because before T-Pain, before Akon, maybe even before Nate Dogg, we had the hood Sam Cooke. Like, I loved his voice. And I don't even really have a question. I just never see or hear anyone talk about the greatness of him. I just want you to talk about him, if you will. Maybe there's some things that people don't know. Maybe there's a cool story, his work ethic. He was, man, Johnny P was an extraordinary talent. And he was kind of before his time a little bit. You know what I mean? And I don't think that he absolutely got the support that he needed in order to flourish. And, um, you know, sometimes you can have a diamond and it's not shining and you don't really know that that's a diamond. Oh, yeah. I wonder why my life would be And I think that's what it was for him. His group, the people that he was around, Do or Die, AK, Nod, Nala, and uh, B-Love, they, they knew who he was. They knew what he was. And, uh, you know, he was just a very phenomenal talent. And I think that not being able to really knock the doors down the way he wanted to, it led him to drugs and the different other things. And, you know, and he, at the end, he passed away from complications of illnesses that he had. And it was just a sad situation, but it was crazy that you even mentioned him because I was listening to this song. I've been listening to it. I think I'm getting ready to redo it. 
It was a song he did with Scarface called Win, Lose, or Draw. And that record is so hard, man. And when you hear him singing on this record, it just pierced through your whole body when you listen to it. Because he had so much passion in the things that he that he did. He was a funny guy, too. He was hella flamboyant, man. <laughs> and he was funny as hell. And he would speak his mind. He wouldn't give a shit who it was. So, you know what I mean? I, I, had, a, I had a lot of times, man. I enjoyed a lot of, lot of time with Johnny P. I think do or die. I mean, this is just my opinion. But when they worked with Kanye, I thought it was a misstep. Yeah. I just The original formula just can't be messed with. Um, no, nah, I mean, Trackstar, Trackstar, was really, Trackstar was really the guy that, really solidified their sound. I came in after when they had disagreements or whatever happened and I was able to pick the torch up because I understood musically and I was able to be led by do or die on certain aspects of the music in order to make it comparable to what they had. When they got with Kanye, Kanye just took a wholly different route, totally different route with their sound and it just didn't fit. You know what I mean? So that's what I tell people all the time. You can go to the most famous guy in the world. If he doesn't match, it's almost like having a basketball team like the Nets full of talent and they just don't make it to the big dance because the chemistry is not. Oh, there. yeah. And that and that's I mean, very important. Jermaine Dupree made Lil Bow Wow a billionaire. But when you put him on a Paul Wall record, it's just a Mr. Lee imitation. Uh, that's what I'm learning. The 30 minutes I've learned uh, from us having this conversation is timing and like formula. And, it, and exactly. it, it's really big. Exactly. And I mean, honestly, man, when somebody's doing Houston music or they work with a Houston artist, Mr. Lee vibe is going to be involved. You're going to hear Oregon somewhere. You're going to hear something. You know what I mean? Like the sense that I use. I started using sense 20 years ago. I was the guy that really got up into that shit. You know what I'm saying? Now you got the, the synth God. You got Mike Dean. He's doing his thing with the sense. He's the synth God. You know what I'm saying? That's my big brother. And I love him. You know what I mean? The, the shit that he does. And just to be able to know that I was a part of an era that I was influenced by him and I was able to influence him too. You know what I mean? So it's it's crazy to see how things really transpire. But yeah, when you looking at a, a, a real like real live Houston artist or somebody's doing a record with a Slim Thug or Paul Wall or something like that, a Mr. Lee vibe is gonna be uh, just gonna, it's just it's gonna be there, man. Just it's gotta be there. It's gotta be there, man. I, yeah, I think you're having a conversation with someone that really does respect that aspect of you, and I and I do recognize that. Um, I I could talk to you all day, but out of consideration of your time, uh, we can wrap it up. But if you have some stuff that you want to plug, I, I do want to give you the floor. So anything that you want to say, uh, any talent you're cultivating, I'll give you the floor. I mean, at this time, I just want everybody to make sure you check into my Instagram. It's Mister Lee Seven One Three. I have a daily series. That comes on there at 11 a.m. It's called Beats for Breakfast, where I go in every single day and make a track live on Instagram Live. And I also post all my music on my feed and on the reels after I do it. And I'm also working on a new gospel album called Glory that's going to be coming out really soon. And I have the Blue Laces 3, the final Blue Laces with me and Nipsey Hussle that's coming out really soon. That's It's already complete. We have some big names on it. We're still kind of tweaking it a little bit, but it'll be coming out soon. Yeah, I, I just want to thank you for – I mean, I think you saw something in this podcast that was worth your time. I appreciate you coming on. You 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 basically scored my childhood. You you talked to Nipsey three days before he died. You know, you cultivated all these – You know, I think T.I. needs to write you a million-dollar check for discovering Iggy Azalea. <laughs> for sure. I mean, personally – I. I, I, I want to thank you for your contributions to this art 
And um, that, that's kind of why I wanted to do this podcast for, for if you're living on a rock or if you didn't know, maybe you live in New York and you don't know about Southern music, Mr. Lee is the man. So uh, I appreciate you being here. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it, brother.